Hey, 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 it's episode four of the Solved Unsolved Mysteries podcast, y'all. It's almost Christmas, so ho, 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 let's go, 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 yeah, wait. Actually, it's past Christmas now, isn't it? By a lot. I started writing this in, in late September, and I don't even know where the fuck I am now. Oh yeah, this is the Solved Unsolved Mysteries podcast, the podcast where you watch an episode of Unsolved Mysteries, or not, and then listen to the corresponding episode here so you don't have to Google updates or anything, because I did it already. Here's one update. Probably nothing good happened. Okay, I'll be quick with this intro so we can jump into the real content. I'm trying to work on my own criticism on this show. The time between episodes is way longer than last time. It was going to be shorter, but I got horribly sick October 3rd and stayed sick until February. And I'm already a little sick again, but I can actually talk now. So sorry about that. I went to the... <laughs> which thing am I apologizing for? I went to the doctor seven or eight times and swallowed approximately 110 pills. That is a real... That's, that really happened. Then our apartment broke and water flooded in, and we had to move during that whole sickness thing. It was not a fun time. I've also noticed that I talk too much about myself on how the show is made and how late every episode is and how terrible I am, so starting now, I'll do that less. Healing. Improvement. Except, one important note. I've noticed that Amazon Prime, since the second episode of this podcast, has fixed the show episode order on their website. So if you are following along, episodes one and two of this podcast are actually over episodes four and five of the show itself, if you're watching on Amazon. This episode you are currently listening to right now is episode four of my podcast, but it's now episode one of episode one, season one, of Unsolved Mysteries on Amazon Prime. So, if you'd like to watch the episode that this podcast is based on, it's Season 1, Episode 1 of Unsolved Mysteries on Amazon Prime. I'll wait. To be super duper clear, Episodes 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 of this podcast are actually going to be Episodes 4, 5, 3, 1, and 2, respectively, of Unsolved Mysteries on Amazon Prime Video. After part 5, everything will be normal again, i.e. episode 6 of this podcast will be episode 6 of the show on Amazon. Even the people on Amazon are confused by the insane random story order of Unsolved Mysteries reruns, apparently. That's it, we're finished with the intro, we're done, ain't nobody listening to techno. Up this time on the podcast, it's a cauldron of depressing story soup. What's that? Oh, that's actually tofu. It's depressing stories and tofu. A little chili oil, bonito, easy to make, man. First, Wanted. A woman in Michigan, Shannon Davis, falls from a horse, but did she really? And why were there puncture wounds on her body? And why did her husband have over $300,000 in a secret life insurance policy on her? And why did he run away? You'll find out. Spoiler alert, it was because he was a giant human-shaped sculpture of shit. Second, a mystery of lost heirs to an unclaimed small fortune of $175,000 may result in the discovery of a long-lost relative. And 175000 of their long-lost dollars. Story 3, the unexplained death of Aileen Conway, whose car was found a smashed, smoldering mess. The fire seemed to be set from the outside, maybe, and several other strange details. 
Number four has some mysterious legends action with a husband and wife that vanished on a Grand Canyon river trip in 1928, as well as mysterious skeletal remains that may or may not be one of the couple. It's not, but we'll explain why, and it'll be interesting, I promise. Our final and longest story of the entire podcast history, story number five, the missing person story of Dottie Kaler. Dottie was a sufferer of agoraphobia, but when she decided to take a trip, she seemingly disappeared at the train station. She was never seen again, even though her purse and personal items mysteriously reappeared in her car sometime after. It's a clusterfuck. Okay, so let's jump into sadness and terror and kickstart this unfunny non-comedy podcast with part one, Wanted. Hillsdale County, Michigan, July 23rd, 1980. Shannon Davis and her husband, David, visit a ranch to go horseback riding. Sometime after, David is seen running back in a frenzy, claiming that his wife fell and hit her head on a rock. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. Like what happened to Superman, except he died much later. So I guess it's not like that. It was strange that she should fall and hit her head on a rock in an open clearing, and even more strange were the puncture wounds found on her shoulder and arm, depicted in the show. Shannon Moore meets a man at a wedding. They hit it off. The man's name is Dave Davis. They are soon married. Eat this fucking guy. was neat. On a farm in a rural community in Michigan, recently married husband and wife, Dave and Shannon Davis, decide to go for a sunset ride on two gigantic killing monsters called Horse S. Fun fact, we eat horses here in Japan. Personally, I think they deserve it. According to Dave Davis, wait, his name is really Dave Davis? Ugh. You can already tell he's an actual fucking Marvel supervillain. I described him probably to a lot of people as a man's man. Red he flag. Was, uh... According to Dave Davis, his new wife was not a very good writer. The monstrous killing machine she rode upon gave her some trouble, and she was, as a result, thrown from her horse and hit her head on a rock. A short time later, the ambulance is called and Shannon is collected by the EMTs. Seriously, I know like I know lots of women that like raise horses and ride horses and they think they're beautiful, but the fucking giant horrible monsters that'll stomp you to death. At the hospital, Shannon is declared dead. Shannon's parents were present at the hospital as well as Dave Davis, evil horse magician. Her parents were surprised to find out that Dee Dee already arranged for her body to be cremated. They were shocked by the speed of this, but mostly they were shocked because Shannon had explicitly told them she never wanted to be cremated. Shannon and her family were Catholic, and it's very unusual for adherent Catholics like Shannon to elect to be cremated, especially since she somehow changed her mind within the time she met and married her husband. They argued in the hospital. Shannon's father explains that he and his family just don't believe in cremation. Well, it's a real thing, Robert. Look, I googled it. Stupid jokes. Anyway, they argue. The parents are convinced Davis is doing the wrong thing with the cremation, and they leave with intentions to find a judge to put a restraining order on him, blocking him from getting the cremation order, and to return Shannon's body to her hometown for a family burial. Ugh. When I die, I want to be smoked in cigars. But later that night, 
Lucille remembers that Dave was caught in a lie about life insurance. At the hospital, Robert asked Dave if he had a life insurance policy on Shannon. He said no. But Lucille knew that Shannon had actually come to her house directly to talk to her about how Dave took out a life insurance policy on her around the time of their honeymoon. Why you always lying? This struck her as incredibly suspicious. Three days later, when Shannon was buried, the family noted that Dee Dee didn't seem particularly emotional about it. So his plan was to like hire a horse hitman? Even when that wizard waved his magic doodad. I had to do that one time my family is also Catholic. It was a weird experience. Back to the show. Shannon's mother, Lucille Moore, said she actually really loved David. Her father, Robert Moore, said he also liked Dave Dave and said he was a man's man. This is probably because he has two male first names. They would learn more things about Davis that had made them suspicious of his intentions. <laughs> Uh, which I guess are intense intentions, if you can put that in your pocket. Which will now be explained by Corduroy Farm Detective Robert Stack. Mm. Dave Davis is now ah, he just like conveniently leans up against that post. But the Moors are afraid that their son-in-law may have gotten away with a perfect crime. At this point, the mother is convinced the son-in-law has murdered her daughter. She feels confused angry and struggles with the thought about what to do. Then six requests for a death certificate are sent to the funeral home from six different insurance agencies. The family was alerted that Dave Dave was set to receive approximately $330,000 in 1980, which in 2019 is equivalent to about one million fucking dollars. Holy fuck, man. How many woolongs is that? Robert Moore, Shannon's father, does a little digging and finds that Dave did some other shit. Like burning down a building and collecting fire insurance, faking a work injury and getting money from that. Fake injury from when he worked for uh, the automotive company. So uh, I'm allergic to Chrysler conquests. He was addicted to insurance money, deception, and mullet haircuts. Anyway, Shannon's family have her body exhumed, but it appears she had actually fallen from a horse. But also present in her body is a strange chemical agent. Horse cocaine. But never mind, it's probably nothing. Her death has ruled as an accident a second time and she was reburied. It wasn't until a well-researched and widely seen newspaper article was published that exposed all the information about D-Dave that the case was reopened. Science. This guy led the investigation. His name was Brooks. And after carving his name into a wooden post in the old halfway house, he does some science on an overhead projector from my elementary school's library and determines that Dave Davis probably used drugs that vets would use to paralyze animals. They tested a few chemicals until they found an exact match. It was horse cocaine. Look for the horse with the extra long hoof. And after more questioning and digging, it turns out that it was actually already known that dumb Davis had this shit because he would go deer hunting with it and dope the tips of his arrows with it to paralyze the deer he hit while bow hunting, while probably drinking old Milwaukee beer and complaining about these damn Japanese cars, things people did in the 1970s. Around this time, all this info sparks a huge thirst for justice for Shannon, and David David flees to, you guessed it, Florida. Of course. Shannon's body was exhumed a second time, 
re-examined with a greater level of intensity, and two injection marks were found on her shoulder and wrist. Like, one very small puncture mark on each. She wasn't attacked by a vampire. Brooks called Shannon's mom and allegedly said, Bingo. For justice had called that day, and it wanted to leave a message, and its message was bingo. B-I-N-G-O. 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 And science was to blame O. <laughs> Ugh. I'd say I hate the writer, but the writer is me. Okay, maybe that's accurate. No comment from Brooks's partner, Dunn. Only 90s country kids will remember. Wait, is that actually one of their songs? Ugh, again. At this point, the scene is reconstructed as thus. Yes, I did a Brooks and Dunn joke. Get over it. Shannon and Dweeble Dweebus are riding horses. He grabs her. There is a struggle. She hits her head on a rock, or he intentionally hits her head on a rock. And while she's stunned or unconscious, he finishes the job by injecting her twice with a large dose of animal tranquilizer. He then runs for help, makes up the story about her falling from the horse, and the rest of the events fall into place. But Dave Davis forgot one important detail when planning his murder. He's a stupid bitch. Now everyone knows everything because he's so spectacularly shitty at hiding his tracks. The hunt is on, and Shannon's mom is fucking pissed. Unsolved Mysteries issues a call to find Dave Davis, who is the misrepresentation enthusiast, and bring him to justice so Shannon's parents can take turns kicking his dick in. This concludes the information given in the broadcast. <laughs> As if all that information was included in the broadcast. Update. Pacific. Holy Davis fuck, is he John Goodman? Days later by FBI agents. Did he become John Goodman? John Goodman from the Big Lebowski is caught and put in handcuffs. Audio-only listeners, Google this sailboat shirt-wearing motherfucker, it will make your day. Nine days after the initial broadcast, Dave Davis is recognized by a neighbor in American Samoa, of all places. Apparently, he had resettled there with a 20-year-old wife who looks pretty fucking embarrassed and pissed off in this episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Dave said he didn't do it because, again, he's a stupid bitch. After a nine-year battle for evidence, support, and national search... Is convict uh, wait, isn't that also a 90s song? Uh, he is convicted of murder in a court of law for the killing of Shannon. Update again. Davido Davido is convicted and ordered to serve life in prison. That's what we wanted. But we'll go on the rest of our life missing her. That's what I said. He gave us the death penalty. Now we're giving it to him. After 25 years in jail, he died in prison. Okay, updates after the show and extra crap that I've written. This was a pretty famous case at the time and spawned lots of TV specials and appearances on just about all of the crime shows and even had its own made-for-TV movie, much to the chagrin of Dave Dave. And, uh, oh, uh, later in the podcast, I talk about how I started a Patreon. Well, remember way back when I said there was a, uh, a made-for-TV movie about all this uh, 14 seconds ago? There's a made-for-TV movie about all this, and it may or may not be a bonus episode of this podcast, depending on how terrible it is and whether or not people give to that Patreon. Anyway, continuing. There's also a featured episode in Season 6, Episode 13 of Forensic Files, which, by the way, the episode is called Horseplay. Yes, really. That's actually... That is worse taste than my jokes on this podcast, and that is impressive. Can you tell that my neighbors are building a house? Son of a bitch. 
And there is an episode of The New Detectives featuring the story as well. I have no idea what that show is, but that is a fact that you can have. This episode actually does a pretty good job uh, explaining all the main events that happened in the story as well as update it. But I want to go back and fill in a bit of detail and context using a few articles I found. So a bit about Dave Davis. He was born in Flint, Michigan on September 27, 1944. He was 10 years Shannon's senior, about 36 years old at the time of the murder. When Shannon Moore's father, Robert, mentioned that Davis had a lifetime of insurance fraud and lying, he hit the nail on its little mullet head. What was Davis up to before he met, married, and murdered Shannon? He attempted to marry and murder another person. I direct your eye and or earballs to this bit of extra information that can be obtained by looking up the case file, People v. Davis, from Lansing, Michigan, in 1993. Here is a quote from the document that may or may not blow your nuts off. Quote, In the mid-1970s, defendant, a former pharmacology student, dated Kay Kendall. During that relationship, defendant told Kendall about a murder committed using succinclocline. Succinclocline. Oh, Jesus. Succinclocline. Succinclocline. Succinclocline or SCH, oh thank god, a muscle relaxant that can result in suffocation if injected. Defendant describes the use of SCH to kill someone as, quote, the perfect crime. In 1978, defendant created a false identity, obtaining a Florida's driver's license under the name David Meyer Bell. Defendant then asked Miss Kendall to marry him. Miss Kendall decided that she could not marry defendant, and they broke off their relationship in April of 1979. So he's dating Miss Kendall, tells her, hey man, it would be the perfect crime to murder someone with this muscle relaxant. And then he gets a fake name and driver's license for Florida, and then he asks her, will you marry me? She dodged a bullet, a grenade, maybe also a fucking airstrike. Shit. This was his dry run. With Shannon, he gets her to marry him. He kills her. We know now he had insurance policies on her. And once there's any hint of trouble, he runs to Florida because he's already got a false identity already set up, ready to go, because he's attempted to do this once before. Of course, further in the case, there's lots of hard evidence that's hard to argue with. Oh, holy shit, is that why it's called that? We now know that some of the rumors of false insurance claims add on to that he studied uh, pharmacology, he used the same drug that killed her to hunt fucking deer. <laughs> Jesus. And he had a pretty uh, obvious motive with all those secret insurance policies. Add on to that, he literally told his hypothetical plan to someone else a couple years before, and he created a false identity to hide himself should it not work out. It shows how much of a stupid lying bitch he is for always saying, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. When there's a fucking photograph of him in Florida on a Florida license with a different goddamn name on it. Explain this to me, you stupid asshole. Nobody gets a fake ID in Florida when they've been living in fucking Michigan without planning to do some dark archipelago shit. I'm surprised it wasn't Dan Daniels or Donald Donaldson or Dick Dick Fisterson. Probably not that last one. But anyway, uh, oh yeah, uh, David doesn't admit to the murder like ever even though there's no other possible explanation for what happened or why he had fake identification. Unless... Conspiracy! 
Listen to this bullshit from a 2001 article in the Toledo Blade. When NBC TV shows reruns of the movie of his wife's murder, David Davis refuses to watch with other prisoners. The 57-year-old inmate says he already knows how the plot ends, and it's not his version. Over and over, he has played her death in his mind. His young wife, gasping for breath in his arms, the blood trickling down her chest, and her whispers fading into silence. I could never have hurt her, he says, his voice trembling. Somebody took creative writing on Tuesdays at the community college. Goddamn, bro, this isn't an episode of Murder, She Wrote. But basically, here's his thing. The medical examiner is full of shit. Defense lawyer Thomas Bleakley argues that in two autopsies after her death on July 23, 1980, forensic experts found that her head injuries were consistent with a fall from a horse. We already know that. At least four laboratory tests on her blood and tissues did not turn up any dangerous drugs, court records show. The Toledo parents of the deceased woman say they are stunned the case is now in federal court and even angrier at their former son-in-law, an international fugitive until he was arrested eight years after his wife's death. The tragedy sparked three syndicated television shows, note they mean TV show episodes, a book, and the 1993 made-for-TV movie. It is pretty crazy, though, because this is a challenge to the science used to trace the chemicals. Remember in the show, they were playing with the overhead projector while the teacher was getting coffee? This challenged that whole thing. Essentially, their claim is that the FBI didn't even invent the technique to detect the chemical in human tissues until the 1990s, several years after this medical examiner in question used a method to detect it. He is even being challenged by four other actual experts in the field, according to this article. Basically, here's what happened. The toxicologist uses gas chromatography, oh my god, I said that correctly, and mass spectrometry, two things that I, uh, uh shut the fuck, shut up. Anyway, those methods can be presented in a graphical form, which we were shown in the episode. The unknown chemical that was found in her body was given a visual representation of peaks and valleys. Then they tested poisonous chemicals used in other murders, and using information they already knew about Davis, hunting with this particular muscle relaxant, and they simply matched the readings to declare that the unknown chemical was the poison. Um, sasin, sasin, oh my god, sasinylcholine, sasinylcholine, succinylcholine chloride, fuck. But anyway, everybody here, including university professors and experts, are saying, quote, that method is not scientific and relies on guesses. Actually, the only other convicted murder using this drug in 1965 was overturned due to this very same reason. The chemical fully dissolves into the body tissues and becomes undetectable directly, at least we thought so, before the FBI developed new testing in the 1990s, like I mentioned earlier. In the end, they never got a new trial, and Davis stayed in a Michigan prison. Is this interesting or incredibly boring? I honestly can't tell, but I'm almost finished. Please don't make the joke quietly to yourself that you want to make, because I can totally hear that. Further in the article, it goes into a bit more detail about their lives, as Davis recounts it, anyway. It confirms they dated a mere seven weeks before getting married, meeting at a wedding. 
It also states that the farm was a 100-acre property where they lived, Davis growing corn and soybeans, Shannon commuting to her job as a nurse. They were married about 10 months before the fateful horseback riding incident. In regards to that day, Davis, in rare form, remember he does not admit to the murder nor does he talk about it with anyone, he tells his side of the story in an interview. They were riding through a path through a wooded lot, and we rode this 100 times before, he says in a fake southern accent. It was thick and brushy and full of bugs and biting fleas, so you tried to get the horses through there as soon as possible. I was in front of her, and as we rode along, I heard her scream. I turned around, and I could tell she was in trouble. She was underneath the horse with one boot in a stirrup. I dismounted and went back to her as fast as I could. She was barely conscious. From here, you pretty much know the story, but there are a couple more little bits that struck me. Remember when he fucked off to Florida when they tested Shannon's body? He sold his farm and moved out there to clear his head, he says. He does not acknowledge living under a fake identity at all. He says he met up with an old girlfriend who asked to go along to Florida. He then says, after getting to Florida, he put her on a plane, and she was angry at him for that. He doesn't explain that part. That's his entire excuse for all that. But uh, she was interviewed, and her story is amazing. She says that he told her he was a fucking CIA agent living a dual life. Her name was Jeanne Holman. Two H's. Holman. And she said this under oath in court. He denies this. He also denies seeking out life insurance policies on his wife and claims that the life insurance policies themselves were to protect the farm in case one of them died, which does not make sense since Shannon already had a full-time nursing job, a very demanding job that works many hours, so she didn't exactly work on the farm and why am I even still going through this at this point when it's clear this is all bullshit. This is a guy that claimed he moved onto a boat in, in a Florida marina because he was, quote, tired of being targeted. Moved to L.A. to take flight lessons, then went on the run for eight years to Alaska, Hawaii, and finally, as David Bell, he moved to American Samoa and tricked a 20-year-old girl into marrying him after he told her a sob story about how his wife died in an accident and he needed a move to get away from it all. What a fucking dick. Again, he never acknowledges using the poison before. He never talks about how he already had fake credentials in Florida before he even met Shannon. He never talks about directly discussing the exact murder plot to his previous girlfriend. He basically ignores all the really shady shit entirely and just says the toxicologist lied for no reason and the local government invented a conspiracy to frame him for murder. Fascinating. Then, of course... Fast forward again, blah, blah. He's captured. He's convicted. He spends a lot of years in jail. And in 2014, he dies in a prison hospital from what they believe to be congenital neuromuscular disease, which means that from birth, his uh, neuro muscles were not good uh, at age 70 in a Jackson County, Michigan prison. And that's pretty much the end of the story. Result. Solved and captured, David Davis was eventually caught and died in prison. Well, that was depressing. Let's move on to something slightly less depressing, but still depressing. That's about as good as it gets with this show. And also life. 
Moving on. Part 2. Updates. Lost Heirs. Kansas City, Missouri. October 21st, 1982. A man named George Marsh passes away in a nursing home. Not much is known about the man, and there are no records for his next of kin. Upon his death, he left his family a sum of about $175,000, or almost $460,000 in today's money. Can unsolved mysteries identify his heirs? Probably. Depicted in the show. Oh, holy shit, they already did it. That's pretty much the entire story from the show. It's a short clip. Basically, this man dies in a nursing home, and his fortune has nowhere to go, so the story is aired on Unsolved Mysteries looking for heirs. A woman recognizes a photo of herself that was found in his belongings, a photo of a young girl with the words, Your Loving Niece, Eleanor, written on it. Her name, using those detective skills, was Eleanor, Eleanor Tolar, and she was Marsh's niece, except she wasn't because Marsh's birth name was Yosef Zelenka, a man that disappeared in the early 1930s. The description of Yosef, uh, Joseph, Yosef, I don't know, uh, was quite interesting. He had a tattoo of three, four, five, seven on one of his arms. He spoke with a German accent, and one of his fingers was partially amputated at the joint. He also had an unusually large dick. That's the end of the story. Good night. <laughs> I might have added one of those details. Further details after the show. The physical description of Zelenka and the photo of Eleanor lead the family to contact Unsolved Mysteries, and eventually the family fortune was split among the remaining closest relatives, including Joseph's, Joseph's brother James, who would receive about one quarter of it at the ripe age of 92 years old. Probably spent it all in VHS copies of The Andy Griffith Show and Hummels. According to the family, Joseph was always mysterious. He was a kind man, and he would always show up to the family out of the blue with a new woman and large amounts of cash to give to the family. The family believes that, for whatever reason, he believed the family would be ashamed of him, and that is why he eventually changed his name and moved so far away from them. Because there's no hard feelings. We were all united, always. Maybe he was a gigolo. The deep details of this case are unclear, but the family also claimed his savings were simply the result of working hard over the course of a very long life and being incredibly frugal. Wink, wink. Joseph was born in the Czech Republic in 1888, moved to America, disappeared in his 30s, and died at the age of 94. Eleanor Toller was 72 years old at the time of filming this episode and passed away in 1998 at approximately the age of 87, about 100 years after her mysterious uncle was born. For once, it seems like a kind of a sweet story. Well, bittersweet anyway. I just feel good all over to know that I located him and know mm. where he's at and I'd be able to bring his body back to rest with the rest of his family. Although they never found him in life, the family was able to find their long-lost relative, say goodbye to him, bury him in the family plot, and then they got free money. I wish I knew more, but that's, that's pretty much. Result. Solved. Zelenka Marsh's inheritance was claimed by his relatives and was finally laid to rest by his family. That's a big fucking grave. Holy shit. All right, well, I guess a happy story about a dead guy. Oh, 
was weird. Part 3. Unexplained Death. 10.40 a.m. April 29th, 1986. Oklahoma. Where the wind was whipping, whatever. I don't know the words to that. The heat was so intense that the car had actually melted into the metal guardrail. Holy shit. Which it had crashed. Aileen Conway's mysterious car crash. I regret making a musical reference now. A woman was found in her smoldering car, smashed into a guardrail. Police visit her home to investigate, and it's as if she stopped doing several activities halfway. Like leaving the phone off the hook, running a bath, and leaving the garden hose on. It's unclear to the police what happened. Depicted in the episode. We're going to have to blow this nose. Are you ready? Oh, gross. What? This is like a Cronenberg movie. A farmer in a rural Oklahoma town notices smoke coming through the tree line from the road near his farm. He called local authorities, and a few minutes later, Oklahoma Highway Patrol arrives to see a vehicle smashed into a guardrail and smoldering. As the officer approached, he saw the driver inside, burned beyond recognition. It was a futile exercise whatsoever to try to get to the occupants in the car, due to the, the car had already burned so bad. That's fucking terrifying, dude. The car is identified, and the owner appears to be the Conway family, Pat and Aileen. The body inside is female, so it is assumed that it is Aileen Conway. The police contact Pat, and Pat heads home. I think that's the way it happens anyway. What he finds is a list of oddities. First, the patio door was open all the way. Aileen's purse was sitting by an armchair in the living room, and inside were her driver's license and eyeglasses. Continuing to another room, he noticed the ironing board was set up, clothes were on it, and the iron was sitting on top, still turned on and hot. Looking outside, he noted that the garden hose was pointed into the swimming pool, still running. Further still, the master bathroom's tub was full of soapy water, and the phone was sitting on the ledge of the tub, off the hook. After viewing all this, Pat immediately is suspicious of foul play. He believes his wife was the target of a robbery that went south, and was caught in the middle of doing several chores when she attempted to answer the phone. When she couldn't complete the call, she ran to her car and fled. Or maybe he means that she was trying to call the police. Pat suspects this from all the strange unfinished tasks in the house, and because of where Aileen's car ended up. The area that the crash occurred was not a common area for either of them to be in. Essentially, it was just a back road that the locals used to get to their own homes and farms. Pat himself contacts the district attorney, Ray Anderson, but after Ray thinks about some of the strange details of the case, he believes it's very possible that something other than an accident may have happened. Soon after, Pat and Ray investigate the crash scene themselves, and the only clue they find is a church flyer. They then surmise, since apparently Aileen never drove with the windows down, always with the windows up and the AC on, that the only way the flyer could have come from the car is if the doors were open and someone staged the crash to look like an accident. I gotta say that sounds pretty far-fetched at this point, with no other evidence, but let's continue. What the fuck, they just found a piece of paper? Because of this investigation, the DA officially changed the cause of death from an accident to unexplained. The fire marshal was then asked to review the case to see whether or not it was possible that the car fire was the result of arson or accident. Sonny Sansom, 
fire marshal and alliteration expert, looks at the photographs of the car and immediately is suspicious because of how badly the car is burned. Essentially, there's too much fire in the fire. It piqued his curiosity, especially since the gas cap was removed from the car. But if the car is burned that badly and the gas cap is made of plastic and rubber like most other cars... And now, informal burn tests. What the fuck are informal burn tests? If I ever start smoking weed, that's what I'll call it. Formal burn tests and suit and tie. They determined that direct fire contact does not burn the car's insulation, and that it was likely that the interior would somehow have to be soaked in gasoline in order to cause the kind of fire from the inside that seemed to have happened to the Conway car. By the way, if you've ever burned that... Uh foam insulation stuff on the inside of a car, it is the worst fucking smell ever. And it absolutely does absorb liquid. That's kind of partially what it's supposed to do. So if you soak that with gasoline, it would burn really fucking good. Paul Renfro of the Oklahoma Bureau of Investigations asks, Why? Well, according to him and local law enforcement, there had actually been a few break-ins in the area around the same time Aileen died. So the older theory that it was some kind of interrupted burglary gone horribly wrong was very possible in their minds at the time. I'm closing the bottle of the Nico whiskey now. Okay. Oh, yes, now it's closed. Of course, I'm a firm believer that that's what normally captures the criminals is their inability to keep their mouth shut. Yeah, this motherfucker's right. This motherfucker with this motherfucking mustache. Usually they fuck it up for themselves, right? Pat Conway still looks for clues and answers. He declares he will never quit looking, and a reward was offered. There are no further updates in this episode. Updates after the show and extra information that I have put together for you. Well, there kind of isn't any. As I've mentioned before, I'm more of a designer and editor and not a researcher, so this is new to me, but any records from local newspapers of Lawton, Oklahoma, for some reason, all end in the year 1977. I can't find any local records newer than that, probably due to their weird archival methods. One newspaper archive site yielded a couple of hits on Pat Conway's name one of which was a sole article I could find referencing the car crash, which he issues a $10,000 reward for any information regarding the mysterious circumstances of his wife's death. That's it. If you'd like, I'll stick a link in the description box, and you can read the 35-page long discussion on this episode on a forum that frequently pops up when you Google the names of people that have been on this show. I've mentioned it before. It is a great source for scenarios of what could have happened. But aside from theories, there isn't really much actual information. Until Story 5 later in the podcast, actually, I guess, where it actually becomes super important, that website. But I didn't feel like it would really add to the show, especially this part of the show, to put any of the theories mentioned in this thread into the episode because it's just crazy speculation by fans of the show. And in reality, even though it's been over 30 years, No new information about this case has emerged at all. If you can find sources of information, even just newspaper articles or magazine pieces, regarding this story, please share them in the comments of wherever you're listening. It was very difficult to find sources for this story, and that's always frustrating to me during the creation of the show. And furthermore, I think it leads to misinformation about the case to have very little in the way of actual scholarly or news sources. 
Okay, remember way back when when I said I don't want to speculate in my show? Let's speculate in my show. Hit tilde and type in noclip and come with me. It's a shittily written video game reference. The one article I found references the fact that jewelry was missing the day Aileen died. I don't think this is mentioned on the episode, but maybe I overlooked it several times. The various interrupted activities, plus the jewelry being gone, plus the phone being off the hook, could lead you to the idea that it was a robbery gone bad. In fact, that was the prevailing theory, as I've mentioned before. Perhaps she somehow escapes and is pursued by the robber or robbers, and they pit her car against the railing of the guardrail of that bridge and ensured its destruction with poor Aileen inside. If you go with the criminal theory, the version of this is the most likely scenario. If you are a frequenter of true crime podcasts, your first thought was most likely, The husband did it! And how dare you? That's that's actually usually the case. But we don't actually have anything on Pat Conway that would put him at the scene, give him motive, or anything. He dedicated quite a bit of time with law enforcement and outside sources, looking for clues and motives, and actually did offer a reward and appeared on this very show for the sole purpose of finding whoever did this to his wife. This is the opposite of a different man that will be in story five. If he did commit the crime, it would be pretty stupid move to appear on the show deliberately that at this point has already assisted in multiple captures of criminals. Not saying that's impossible person in story five, just that some people like the guy in story five might be totally crazy. Unfortunately, at this point, Pat Conway Sr. has passed away. He died at the age of 81 back in 2013, and he and Aileen were married for 33 years with seven children prior to her death. About two years after her death, he did remarry and remained married to the second wife another 25 years until his death. It doesn't appear that much information regarding the death of his wife comes out after the airing of this episode, and Pat has a mostly normal life after this. He spends over a decade on the local school board, he was a Boy Scout master, he was a softball coach, he had 18 grandchildren and 21 great-grandchildren, and died surrounded by his family. He just seemed like a very normal and family-oriented guy with no obvious hint that anything shady was going on at all. But regarding Aileen's death, we can't prove that it was criminal. All we know is that it was weird. It's not like freak accidents are impossible. It could be weird for lots of reasons, like, I don't know, maybe she suddenly got confused due to an at-the-time undiagnosed medical condition. She could have had mild Alzheimer's and suddenly something triggered a bout of extreme confusion and duress. She could have had undiagnosed bipolar disorder that was heavily triggered. She could have had some physical conditions such as diabetes that caused an extremely strange behavior change due to chemical imbalances in the brain. She could have fallen and hit her head and began a lot of chores and forgot what she was doing in the middle of all of them, decided to go to the grocery store, got confused, got distracted, and ended up in the guardrail. We have no idea. It's not my place to play detective or pretend I have any sort of secret knowledge or that I'm special or smarter than the police detectives and private investigators that already researched this case. I just like to poke at things and try to see if there's any new information uh, to recontextualize these stories and give us some answers. I'm here to tell you what I know, and in this case, I don't know shit. We don't know shit. It's like a high school chemistry class for me all over again. Also, my college chemistry class. 
Just like that uh, sweet mustache guy said on the show episode, we probably won't know shit until someone confesses. Or maybe there's nothing to confess. Like it's some sort of unsolved mystery. Result. Still unsolved. Part 4. Mysterious Legends. My favorite part of the show, usually. 1928. Glenn and Bessie Hyde, a married couple, go missing on a Grand Canyon river trip. Some say Glenn brought Bessie out on the river to murder her, while others claim it was Bessie who murdered Glenn, and that Bessie still lives in the area, telling her tale to people who will listen. A man's skeleton is discovered with a bullet hole in its head, but is it Glenn Hyde? And if so, what happened to Bessie? I don't fucking know! Ooh, Mysterious Lesnars, these are really usually stupid. Where'd you get this footage? Depicted in the show. 1928, newlyweds go on a canyon trip and are never seen alive again. Emery Kolb, a well-known photographer in the Grand Canyon area, is the last to see them alive. Kolb dies approximately 50 years later, and while his property is being cleaned out, a fully intact human skeleton with a single gunshot to the head is discovered in a boathouse, actually inside of a boat. Local authorities, as well as an Idaho newspaper, put these two points together and assume that it's possible that the skeleton is that of Glenn Hyde. Now let's go back in time. Uh, I, I mean, more back. Glenn Hyde marries his young wife, an 18-year-old Bessie Hyde, in Twin Falls, Idaho. Bessie has a surprisingly stylish haircut, and so does he. Glenn and Bessie wanted to do a boat trip in a boat they made themselves on white water with no life jackets. There is no amount of money that you could pay me to ride a fucking canoe down the fucking Colorado River. Jesus. Hindsight is a bitch. They actually set a record in the speed they finished their first leg of the trip. Then they met Emery Kolb. Kolb was renowned for his photographs and was considered a local hero and expert on the river. Kolb tried to warn the couple of the dangers the next piece of their journey and offered life jackets and gear to help them if they could not be persuaded to turn back. Glenn refused all help, would not turn back, and was determined to make the trip with just the boat and the paddles they brought. Two days later, no one saw them anywhere. Aviation officers from the Army flew around the area and spotted only a single, undamaged, empty boat. Whose boat is this? This was confirmed by the search team, which found clothes, food, a loaded rifle, and Bessie's diary in the boat. One guy looks like Emil from Robocop. He looks like, uh, fucking Emil from Robocop. We killed you! We killed you! That's more or less the story mysterious. The skeleton is given to an expert, Dr. Birkin, uh, uh, Dr. Burke B, and he was able to assemble the skeleton and find a 32 caliber bullet in the skull. The bullet matches what appears to be a Harrington and Richardson top brake auto ejector revolver, they don't specify this in the show, which began manufacturing around 1902. Google it if you want a visual or uh, watch us on YouTube. Add the H&R Vintage Top Break Revolver that's actually identical to one I tried to buy once on an internet auction site to the clothing fragments stuck to the skeleton, and they date the corpse to be approximately of the time of Glenn and Bessie's disappearance. 
I like top break revolvers. I think the mechanism is cool, probably because I saw the anime Trigun a lot when I was a kid. doesn't really have anything to do with anything in the podcast other than it makes identifying and dating the gun easier, thus possibly establishing a timeline. Moving on. They propose a theory that Emery Kolb could have murdered Glenn in order to have Bessie for himself, then immediately point out that it's preposterous. So now I find it suspicious that they even mention it at all. I think I heard a rumor that Emery was an alien and Glenn was a reincarnation of the Holy Buddha. It's probably preposterous, but I'd like to mention it intentionally in this podcast to waste your time. But no, there is no evidence of any of these fucking rumors onwards. They take a picture of Glenn Hyde and use fucking mirrors to superimpose the image over the skull they found to try to figure out if the skull size, shape, and proportions are similar enough to Glenn. I mean, it looks... That's kind of amazing, actually. I... Wow. I'm going to have to get spooky as shit. Oh, it's getting creepy. Oh, it's too creepy. It's too spooky for me. I need scissors. Berkby don't like no rumors, so he's trying to make sure this is or is not Glenn Hyde, so people will possibly shut the fuck up about the red herring in the mystery, and his own research proved him right. He was actually right. His skeleton was a totally different person who clearly shot himself. It's sad, but, like, not Glenn Hyde. That had nothing to do with the story, despite a bunch of jerk-off rumors. And wasted a pile of the budget for this episode, I would guess. But wait, there's more! In the early 70s, stories of a woman claiming to be Bessie surfaced. Geologist George Billingsley claims to have met a woman on a trip through the canyon. They were near the spot where the boat was found, and because they had a boat guide, he boat guided the story to them in true boat guide, boat guy fashion, while everyone ate beans out of cans, or whatever the fuck people did, in the Grand Canyon, at dark, in the 1970s, with their long protective sideburns. <laughs> I did that in one take, I can't believe it. She allegedly told the story to the group as a bookend to the tale of the disappearance of Glenn and Bessie. That she may have been Bessie herself. And maybe Bessie killed her husband in revenge for him hurting her and beating her and abusing her. She would later be identified and deny that this had happened. Feel her true identity. I'm Bessie Hyde. <laughs> we don't know why Kolb had the skeleton, but it's possible that it was a pet project to discover the identity of the man who died. We do know that he took photographs of the body via the park service because it was discovered by them and he was the local photographer of the canyon and these photographs are actually available on the internet. We don't know shit about what happened. That's the end. Where's my beer? Updates after the show. There aren't any. Go away. Result. Still unsolved. All right, everybody, this is the big one. This might actually be the longest piece I've ever written. Part 5. Missing. Concord, California. 1985. Dottie Kaler and her husband don't get along. Dottie has agoraphobia, but she finally wants to get out and go on a trip. Her husband, Jewel, drops her off at the train station, but she never arrives at her destination. Curiously, somehow the items she brought with her are dropped off in her car, but she herself is never heard from again. What happened to Dottie Kaler? Again, I don't know. 
depicted in the show. Bart Simpson connects East Bay cities to San Francisco. Uh, it's a train system. Bart system. Bart system. On June 12, 1985, Jewel Kaler drives Dottie Kaler, his wife, age 41, to the station. She purchases a ticket. She suffers from agoraphobia, so this behavior is very unusual for her. Dottie suffers from agoraphobia, an irrational, overwhelming fear of being in public places. Oh, I can fucking relate to that shit. I don't even see how the hell I got to work every day. She allegedly goes onto the platform and is never seen again. Jill states that he believed his wife simply left for a few days to, quote, well, make things inconvenient for me. Wait, Jewel is a man? Well, simply make things inconvenient for me. You tiny-eyed motherfucker. Yeah, let's make this all about you, Jewel. Let's talk about Jewel's issues now. Her sister, Diane Rusnak, proposes she was trying to get even on her husband for leaving her for half of their married life, but she would not return. She was talking about how the guy works out of town, by the way, but like like he was an asshole for having a job. Single income family, Diane. Whatever. Shit. I mean, it's not like he had an insane secret life or something. Most people agree, her husband included, that she may have just left to escape the marriage. But she was never heard from again by anyone, so perhaps it wasn't so intentional. Ugh... Let's go back. Dottie and Jewel were married in 1973. He was an aerial photography specialist and entomologist. Etymologist. He worked for park services, so he probably didn't study language. So let's say he was a bug guy. Jewel was working out of town about half the time, and Dottie develops a problem with agoraphobia, which gets worse and worse leaving her at home with no job, no outside hobbies, such as cheeses, and a paralyzing fear of movies with Creature Effects by Tom Savini. <laughs> oh god, I forgot about this fucking joke. It's, it's a gore phobia I might as well quit this podcast right now. You know who Tom Savini did the visual effects for Dawn of the Dead and, like, you know, the movie... Uh, What's that movie where he shoots that guy in the head and he like blows the guy's head off? Whatever, he's a fucking visual effects. Google Tom Savini, he's awesome. Eventually, violence occurs. Both parties agree that Jewel hit her with a typing stand, whatever the fuck that is, but Jewel accuses her of pulling scissors on him and threatening to kill him with them. Which event happened first is actually unknown. Neither is the impetus for the fight. I'm assuming Jewel brought his work home and Dottie discovered him having sex with a co-worker. A fire ant. Oh, maybe a sexy centipede. That's right, a sexipede. That he said she said domestic violence incident was in November of 1981. Look, it's, it's because he studies bugs. I don't know what the fuck insect experts do. Maybe they fuck the ants. I don't know. I gotta say, Jewel doesn't seem to be very amused when talking about the topic of his marriage. Dottie would begin attending a group called Women in Transition, where she met friends and attempted to change her life. They claimed that she was coming out of her shell, dressing more colorfully and leaving the house more frequently. I guess it was for women who wanted to change their lives for the better. They didn't really go into detail. Or maybe it was for hermit crabs who understand human language. Because she came out of her shell. God damn, these fucking jokes are bad. <laughs> Jewel didn't know about her secret life. 
She secretly attended these groups, privately collected her mail, and set up an account for some money that Jewel didn't know about, a secret $5,000 check. Jewel then gets a new job transfer requiring him to leave town, and Dottie does not plan on moving. Jewel is fine with this. Dottie plans an overnight trip. She asks Jewel to drive her to the BART station, and he drops her and her overnight bag off. He never saw her again. He isn't sure that she even boarded the train. The day after, he arrived at the station to pick her up, and her car was there. Her purse was inside. Jewel thought this was incredibly strange. He left her a note on the car, but it went unanswered. He left a note every day for four days, apparently, feeling worried for her, expressing his love and concern for her. But the notes were never taken or answered. This also seems weird now when he talks about how he really doesn't like her very much. If he is guilty, this is the most big dick cocky bullshit I have ever seen. A few days later, the BART police actually report her missing after Jewel calls on June 17th. A friend hires a private detective named Francie Kaler. Kohler. Not hired by Jewel. I view it as 10% missing persons case and 90% potential foul play. So people are pretty goddamn suspicious of Jewel. The police acknowledge him as a suspect. Jewel also acknowledges himself as a suspect pretty nonchalantly. He is the least of chalant, actually. The problem is, there is no body, no evidence. Not even contradicting testimony because Dottie didn't talk to anyone else about this trip, I guess. So, there's no evidence that anything happened at all. Jewel believes she left on purpose and found a way to disappear from her life purposefully and permanently. Or he supposes she ran to the wrong person just after her trip began and she was killed. The show takes place about two years after the disappearance, and almost everyone in her life is worried, spending time investigating her whereabouts, thinking about what happened. Except her husband and his cute dogs, which are incapable of complex human emotion. Only simple dog emotion. Jules says he's tired of Dottie and doesn't care about what happened to her anymore, more or less. He wants to move on with his life. After moving and leaving her behind, he says, quote, Things are really pretty good. It was hell having her disappear the way that she did. And yet, uh, since I've gotten here and gotten settled and into a new job and that whole problem is behind me, uh, things are really pretty good. Huh? What the shit? That's pretty weird that Jules seemed so bored by the interview and actually seemed pretty happy that she was gone. Either she was a crazy bitch or he's a psychopath. Hard to tell. It's probably him. That concludes Depicted in the Show. Updates after the show. There aren't any. Anyway, thanks for listening. Goodbye. Nah, I'm just kidding. There's a fuckload. I'm not a doctor, and I can't say for sure, plus I don't want to make it, like, declarative and, like, get sued. So, let's just say if this story were on Law & Order, this guy would get totally dick-wolfed. Allow me to make an overly detailed and incredibly complicated argument that things are not likely as they seem. Yeah, but seriously, there aren't uh, actual, like, updates to the story, just, like, lots of details that have come out, uh, at least about Dottie herself. As far as I can tell, Dottie was never found or her body was never identified as hers. 
I want to tell you that up front because honesty is important. I'm going to actually do this weirdly and repeat myself a little bit in this story because it's such a clusterfuck that there are lots of tiny details that really changed my perspective on the story a lot. So I will apologize beforehand because I may drone on a bit and say the same thing several times. I think I just did. And, uh, all right. Yet again, I see that the podcast, The Trail Went Cold, covered this story, so check that out if you want more information, maybe. I am too afraid to listen to other podcasts about similar topics because I don't want to cross-contaminate my own thing that I'm doing, and I don't want to rip off other people's research and shit intentionally or not in the same medium. When I started this venture, I didn't realize there were so many other podcasts doing the same, you know, show or like the same stories, etc. But I think as long as I don't do the same shit in the same way as other people, I'm still doing my own thing. And that is okay. I'm rambling with paranoia at this point. Please subscribe. Anyway, finding articles from the 90s has proven a little difficult, at least with the show budget I have of literally zero dollars. Or I guess in my case, zero yen. But articles start to pop up on the internet around 2004. It's 2004. Yeah, by Usher and Lil Jon. Lean back by the Terror Squad and drop it like it's hot by Snoop Dogg. Share the top song charts with a favorite of mine, Slow Jams, featuring too many artists to actually list. It's the last season of Friends. New shows like Lost, House, and Battlestar Galactica are on televisions. At the movies, we saw Napoleon Dynamite, Mean Girls, Saw, Shaun of the Dead, and in the newspapers we read, Candidate for Utah Legislature Jewel Kaler investigated in wife's disappearance. Holy shit, he's running for office now. Information from Candidate Investigated in Disappearance, Salt Lake Tribune, March 31st, 2004. Summarized as follows. Got real formal for a second. Jewel Kaler, age 66 at the time runs for Utah legislature as libertarian candidate in March 2004. Soon after, it comes out that he may or may not have made his wife disappear, and it was on a major broadcast television show 19 years ago. He said he does not want to pull out of the race, and he wished he could, quote, put the past behind him. He believes that the renewed interest in the case came from Dottie's sister, Diane Rusnak. Seeing that he was running for office and starting up a, quote, smear campaign. A few more quotes from Jewel. She felt sure I must have made Dottie disappear, but she disappeared on her own. And Dottie's probably still around, probably in this country or the Bay Area, just watching all this and smiling. That was a fucking rough relationship. The article summarizes the events in Unsolved Mysteries episode. It weirdly doesn't mention the show, but it does add fresh details I didn't have before, such as Jewel finally filed for divorce on June 7th of 2003, a bit more than a year before this article, and it confirms that Jewel was seeing another woman about six months before Dottie disappeared in 1985. We will come back to that. It also mentions Jewel's work offer and his move around the time of her disappearance in greater detail. The episode mentions that Jewel is offered a job further away, apparently in the U.S. Forest Service, and that he was planning on moving to secure that job, a move that Dottie makes clear she does not want, and basically tells Jewel that he's on his own. This is part of the reason Jewel leaves notes for Dottie in her car at the BART station when he finds it there. 
He's trying to refinance their house. The plan was to let Dottie live there, I guess, and use the refinance money to get his new place. And he needed her help or something before moving. More on those letters and clarifying that in a bit. Also, apparently, Jules' job, which he kept for 33 years before retiring, was, quote, remote sensing. I have no fucking idea what that is. Doesn't Miss Cleo do that? Do people remember Miss Cleo? Ah, shit. Maybe I need, like, a like a more modern reference, like, um... Ah, like, a uh, Long Island Medium. Yeah, that's a good one. I fucking hate her. Platinum hairspray, dummy fake, sorcerer, motherfucker. How can you see the future when you apparently can't even see a mirror? You are a human hornet's nest. There's a baby crying outside. Uh-oh, and it mentions that police are looking into whether or not Jewel poured a concrete patio in the backyard of their home just after his wife disappeared? Huh? What the fuck? I, was that a previously unconnected data point? I don't know about that shit. Then at the end, the article was like, ooh, it looks like Jewel lives with a woman but isn't remarried. I guess the author was saying... If he starts talking to you about how nice it would be to get some sun outside in the summertime on a nice new patio, pack your shit and get far enough away so he can't remotely sense you. Seriously, what the fuck does that mean? Article 2, two days later, an article from the student paper Universe. That's a weird name for a paper. I think it's Brigham Young University. The detective in charge of the case, at least the one that's been doing interviews, is Kurt Messick of the Concord, California Police Department. In this article, he states that the only actual suspect they have in the case is Jewel. And that this month, they got a new lead where they were tipped by a reporter who interviewed Jewel's old neighbor. That neighbor is apparently the one that said Jewel poured the concrete patio after his wife disappeared. And the detective states, bluntly, quote, We are investigating the possibility of Dottie being under that patio. Blah, blah, blah. Jewel is running for office as libertarian. We know the rest. Let's look at more detailed articles about the actual story at hand. Enter Joan Morris, a reporter for the Contra Costa Tie. One or two of the articles mentioned that a Joan Morris had written a five-part story where most other papers picked up their details and references, but I couldn't find the goddamn articles by this Joan Morris anywhere because they are too old, I guess. The paper's website only archives things from like five years ago, and they had changed their name from the Contra Costa Times to the East Whatever Who Gives a Fuck. Let's continue. After a little more Googling, I realized I had actually overlooked an archive of the articles on a forum where people uh, uh, get savvy with Captain Jack Sparrow with them, if you know what I mean, because you literally cannot access these articles in any other way now. Anyway, let's look at those articles between 2004 and 2006. Yes, I'm writing this story out for a long time, but it's fucking crazy. Let's go. So, let's go back in time. Again, how many times have I said that? Uh, um, we're back in time. Oh, wait, I think I said that one before also. And then also look back to the 80s. In that time, we're going back to... You get what I mean. March 13th of 2004, Joan Morris publishes part one of her five-part articles. The title of which I cannot find anywhere, it was not reproduced with the article, but it immediately blew my balls off. And thankfully, the Japanese health insurance covers Bikuti ball blow-off reattachment surgery. Bikuti means surprise. Again, it summarizes their relationship and what happened for the normies, but a few lines down is where my testes were evacuated. I mean, like they blew off, not that I... 
Okay. Jewel and Dottie met in 1970. That much we know from the show, and what they gloss over is that at the time, Jewel was sort of, kind of, already married to someone else. This is pretty fucking important to the context of their relationship, especially later. Dottie convinced Jewel to get a divorce and marry her instead. Oh, honey, no. Jewel, again, works in the forest like a fucking magical character from Ferngully, but instead of singing songs about being a fruit bat, he's communicating with insects or some shit. I still haven't Googled what remote sensing is. I don't know what he does. I'm waiting for you to do it. Anyway, he's gone a lot, and she stays home, and the agoraphobia goes wackadoodle crazy. I hope that's not too technical. Dottie apparently used to be a secretary for a law office or something, and she does all the money stuff for the household. She notices some weird phone calls, hotel rooms, dinners. She's pretty sure Jewel has found someone else to be with while married, which is officially a trend at this point. Boy's creeping, creeping like the bugs he studies. Dottie confronts him and confirms, according to Jones' article, quote, several affairs. Which isn't surprising. You know, he studies insects. Our boy needs at least six legs to get where he's going, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, you don't? Jules' work transfer, I guess, as it is asserted here, was actually the excuse Dottie needed to stand up to Jewel by way of simply refusing to move with him and planting her feet down. It also confirms that the secret bank account I mentioned like four hours ago was an inheritance of $5,000. Oh, did we mention uh, dollars in 1980? Uh, that means they get a, a converted. Hold on. Okay, $5,000 in 1980 is $11,746.10 in 2019 money. Holy shit. You can breathe easy now. So, she had the house and a little money to live on while he went to go poke bugs in their cloacae. Try spelling that, by the way. They were filing for divorce. They agreed that Dottie would pay her half of the house. Jewel would move, and on June 24th, Dottie would have her own home. Jewel would be gone to do whatever he wanted. On June 11th, she wrote a to-do list, which was dated and eventually recovered. She wrote two checks one to a garage for a smog test and another for car registration, both for her Volkswagen that would uh, eventually be found at the BART station. The next day, Jewel allegedly drove Dottie to the BART station, her carrying her bag full of everything she thought she could need, including a bee sting kit to help with the agoraphobia. I get that, actually. I've been there. That's why it's so weird that her bag is later found without her. Apparently, the plan was for her to spend a few days away while he finished moving, and she would return to an empty house, all her own, with Jewel and his things permanently moved out. But she was never seen after that day. His story, in slightly more detail, is that he dropped her off, went to work, then came home. The next day, he left for work, but at work, he felt sick and only worked a half day. He uses the very same BART station to get to and from work, and when he came back early on his sick day, Dottie's car, which was previously still at his home, remember he drove her to the BART lot, was parked next to his car on the lot. Her big bag full of all her anxiety-reducing crap was on the floorboard. He was very confused. He allegedly unlocks the car, looks through it to try to figure out why it's there. No idea what he thought he would find that would 
explain that, and he notices her money and all her belongings are still inside, except for the bee sting kit for some very odd reason that's never explained. Her driver's license was inside, and a student ID and library card for Diablo Valley College 1985. I think this is when he learns that she's been hanging out at college doing weird college things that absolutely are not explained in the actual episode at all. He says he put her bag in another bag, sounds like my wife, and tucked it out of sight under the seat. Then he wrote his first note asking her to call him and to let him know where she was and why her car was there, I guess. The next day, some sources mention he also took another half day off at work, uh, but it's not mentioned here. The car is in the exact same spot as it was before, undisturbed, so he opens the car with his key and then moves the car so it doesn't get a parking ticket. The next Sunday, I think it's the 16th, Jewel calls a realtor because he wants to rent out the house. He wants to rent out the house, apparently, because he needed Dottie to sign refinance papers in order to successfully complete his move to his new place. Remember, they wanted to refinance the house, she would pay for her half, and then they would use the refinance money to secure his new place uh, in Utah. But since she's gone now, she can't sign them, and that's why he needs to find a renter for the house so he can pay bills, so he can move. This, remember, has been like four days so far, and it's almost took me uh, as long to explain this story, goddamn. This paperwork signing thing does not make any sense if she was going to come back on or after the 24th, when he moved, which he claims was their plan, because he would be fucked anyway, even if she didn't go missing. Maybe she was supposed to sign these papers before her trip? I don't know. Apparently, she refused to tell him where she was going, who she was going with, and didn't give him any new contact information either. But when the realtor arrived at his house, apparently, Jewel was visibly distraught over this whole situation. This part of the story makes no sense to me whatsoever, even with more details, but uh, let's keep rolling. Dottie's best friend, Shelly, finally re-enters the story since she was mentioned in the episode. She is curious what is going on with the move and whatnot, so she calls the house to ask Dottie about what's going on. Jewel does not answer on Friday or Saturday, and on the third day she calls again, on Sunday, the day the realtor comes, he answers. She asks him about Dottie, and he says she left. He has no idea where she is. Shelley asks if he reported her missing, and he said he had. The problem with that, though, is that he actually fucking didn't do that. Shelley is pretty concerned about Dottie and thinks Jewel is a scumbag already, so she actually calls the police department to confirm that she was, in fact, reported missing and wanted to help, offer help in some way, because, you know, that's a friend. The problem is the police had no idea what she was talking about. That made Shelley go from kind of fucking suspicious to really fucking suspicious. Jewel then does actually report Dottie missing on the fifth day. The implication is because he now had to because people, like Shelley, had already started asking questions. Is this exactly true? I don't fucking know. I'm just relaying this shit through the powers of Joan Morris. You might say you're remotely viewing her work through my work. Or not, whatever. Fuck it, let's continue. To the juicy origin story of this storage story of stories. From the article titled, Lies from Prince Charming. By John Morris. Jim Rupp and Dottie met in 1970. 
and soon Dottie was in love, to the point of almost obsession. After a few months of dating, they confessed their love for one another. A friend of the couple also has something to confess. A secret that will literally change your opinion about things you thought probably. This friend said that Jim's real name was Jewel, Jewel Kaler. Why did he lie about his name all this time? Is he an actor who had to change his name to get into the Actors Guild? No, it's because he was already married and had a small child with his wife. Jim, er, Jewel, Jewel, claimed he was in the process of getting a divorce, and he cried. And he promised he didn't mean to hurt her feelings about the whole having an entirely secret life and fake name thing. Dottie agreed to try to make their relationship work. They moved in together. But, as the article mentions, there was a family moment that Dottie's sister remembered during Thanksgiving of 1971. Dottie came to the dinner table, alone, and sobbed all throughout turkey and stuffing to finally spill the beans. And when she cleaned up those beans, she then explained, Jewel was with the wife and kids for the holiday, and not her. Diane, her sister, asked her why she stayed with Jewel. Dottie said she loved Jewel very much. She probably shouldn't have, though, because Jewel had lied about the whole divorce thing and hadn't even filed paperwork yet. It wasn't until three more years that Jewel finally got the divorce, and in 1975, he remarried to Dottie. The marriage was reportedly a small ceremony at Jewel's parents' home, even though they didn't themselves actually approve of the relationship. Only his parents and his now 10-year-old daughter appeared at the wedding. They bought the very house that is endlessly mentioned in the TV show and all these goddamn articles, and Jewel starts to get a little well-known at his job, because, oh my god, here it is! of his success at remote sensing. Apparently, even though he's a bug fucker, uh, entomologist, he became skilled at using infrared aerial photography to detect the spread of disease and other changes in forests at a large level. And he helped to come up with new technology to do that thing I said as well. This explains the later promotion he gets to Utah. Jewel is pretty much always gone from this point on, and this is where Dottie develops agoraphobia. She takes notes on all her thoughts, makes lists of book titles, lists of important phone numbers, writes out every single small activity she would do every day, and was too fearful to even go buy groceries. Now the next part I feel I must quote directly from Joan Morris's article, because summarizing it or editing it down for time does not do it justice. Just as a note for our younger audience listeners, though, the fast food restaurant previously held by Dave Thomas, known as Wendy's, once had a salad bar. Quoted from the article, Jewel was a controlled and controlling man, Dottie's friends say. He could speak endlessly of his attributes, and he was as bad as Dottie when it came to making notes and writing long letters. When employees at Wendy's complained about the mess he allegedly was making of their salad bar and asked him to leave, Jewel wrote an eight-page letter detailing how insulted he was and offering testimonials on how gifted he was at constructing salads. He even included a photograph of himself seated behind a salad worthy of a food stylist. I have never wanted to see a photograph more in my life, but I can't find a copy of it any goddamn where on the internet. He wrote an eight-fucking-page letter to Wendy's 
being butthurt over mixing up their shitty iceberg lettuce into their room-temperature ranch dressing and dribbling fruit cocktail into their terrible chili. I fucking hate Wendy Salabar, god damn it. Hey, this guy hates women so much he got into a fight with Wendy's, the restaurant, is the joke I would make if I were on the Cracked podcast. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, uh, their podcast is uh, much better than mine. Dottie also finds a weird hieroglyphic-like code on Jules' desk, which apparently, when decoded, become the first names of women. Dottie does some detective work. She doesn't have much else to do when she can't leave the house and the internet doesn't exist yet, and somehow finds these women and writes them letters. She went full-blown Batman on this motherfucker and wrote down everything she saw that may have been suspicious, and photocopied every letter and piece of mail that looked weird. She would write down license plate numbers and descriptions of slow-driving cars near the house and documented all of her findings. Almost all of these pieces of evidence she was building against Jewel were kept and found later after her disappearance. It was sometime after this in 1981 when the typing stand assault happens that lands Dottie in the ER with stitches. Jewel, of course, says it was Dottie who was the crazy one in all this, and claims he had to put a big lock on the door to his room to protect himself, which... When you look at all the notes and obsessiveness, maybe both of them were a little crazy. And not to victim blame, I apologize, but guys, just get a fucking divorce, Jesus Christ. Also, Jesus Christ, this is taking forever to put all this down. So, Dottie gets hit with the typing stand, spends some time in a battered women's shelter, and asks for a divorce. Jewel is the one who refuses the divorce, and they agree to get counseling at the shelter, but Jewel is then asked to sign a piece of paper that admits he is abusive, and he refuses. He instead tries to be super nice to Dottie, which works, but only for an incredibly short amount of time until she discovers he is still having copious affairs, even though he is a human stink bug. Look at him! Look! Look! Sorry, audio listeners, you'll have to Google it, but... Okay, picture a stink bug mixed with Robert De Niro looking directly into the sun. Yeah. And here comes the Women in Transition group that was mentioned way at the beginning. Apparently this is some sort of a seminar slash support group for women planning to divorce or who have just become widows. She also joins a unity church, whatever that is, and begins other classes about self-improvement. And at this time, she meets her friend Shelly, who joined the Women in Transition group after her husband suddenly died. They became best friends and hung out a lot, and Dottie is beginning to deal with her agoraphobia. When they met, Shelley would almost always drive. Uh, Dottie was still afraid of going over bridges and into tunnels. They usually met at the Concord BART station because Dottie wanted to keep her friends, groups, and classes a secret from Jewel. In 1985, Dottie told Shelley that her marriage would finally be ending when Jewel's work transfer was complete. They had a fully mediated divorce agreement. But Jules started several arguments about whether or not Dottie should get 50% of their home since she hadn't actually worked. This is when some of the threats allegedly begin. Both according to Shelley and in Dottie's own words in a letter she wrote to Jules' mother, laying out their plan for divorce. Quote, Jules threats to pop me off, as he puts it, may succeed, but in the long run won't get him anywhere. And... The neighbors are watching him now to help protect me, especially because of his 1981 violence against me. 
And if he carried through with his murder threats, he'll just find himself sitting in jail for the rest of his life, or worse. Yeesh. Dottie and her sister Diane meet for the last time at a coffee shop in May of 1985. Dottie is energetic and explains to her sister in detail all of the important parts to remember about her plan to leave Jewel. Number one, she does not want to sign the refinancing papers for Jewel because she feels she is being cheated. Jewel is not cool with this. Number two, she admits she is intentionally dragging things out and being secretive to hurt Jewel because he hurt her during their marriage. Number three, she opened her own checking account, which we already know from records, and she had planned to put $5,000 of 1985 money from an inheritance inside that account. Number four, she opened her own post box to keep her mail a secret. Number five, she was afraid of Jewel but wanted to assert herself and be independent from him for good. But shortly after, she disappeared. Jewel goes into great detail about how he saw her car at the BART station and how he had to move it so she wouldn't get a ticket and the whole thing about writing her letters. Always with the goddamn letters with these people. You may be curious, can I read those letters he left in her car? No, you can read one, but now you don't have to because I found one and here it goes. My dearest Dottie, it is Saturday, June 15, and you have been gone four days. I am so lonely I really don't know how to survive. I need you, always have. I have tried so hard to be good to you, to be good for you, if you could only see that. I couldn't believe it when I found your car parked beside mine on Thursday. I have been checking and making sure it isn't ticketed. What in the world did you get into with all those footprints on your freshly washed paint? And why in the world did you leave your purse? How are you getting by with so few clothes? Whom are you with? Please, God, call me and let me know what you are doing and where you will be when you will be back. You thought I could get an independent loan if you would not sign, but I can't. So you really screwed up my life by refusing to sign those loan papers since the property is in both our names. I don't know what to do. I can neither sell it nor get a loan on it until you are willing to sign the papers with me. Are you with Shelley? She called a few days ago but hasn't called back. So you must be with her. Please give me her last name or a phone number. Since I cannot reach you, I must rent out this place to be able to obtain enough income to cover the loan on my other place. Otherwise, I cannot get anything in SLC. So you will have to take the room you plan to take with Shelley. I have no choice being in the position you have placed me in. So now I cannot give you any choice either. Don't try to screw up this deal. You must cooperate with me this time since you gave me no options last time. Since I don't know even where to contact you, I don't know where to send your things. I would send them to your sister, but I don't want to embarrass you or burden her since she doesn't have much room. I will simply take all the stuff with me unless you contact me and tell me to do something different. In any case, you can get back from me everything that is yours. I don't know what else to do. I don't know any of your friends, so I have no place to move it. I am trying to figure out how to forward my mail, but since I must rent this, I have to forward your mail also, but again I don't know where or to whom, so I will forward all of our mail to Utah. It will go to my office since I don't know when I will be able to get into my new home. If I even can still get it with the delays that have arisen from your refusal to sign the loan, but strangely enough I still care for you even through all the horrible hurts and loneliness you have put me through. 
If I could have you here, trying, helping me again, I would give you everything that you asked for. It might not strain me that much. And if you really would work hard as you said you would so you can get financially independent in a year, then I would really lose very little. Please, oh please, contact me. Don't wait till I am in SLC to let me know what to do. It's just not fair. Being alone is no fun for me. I hope it is no fun for you either. You said you have grown tired of marriage. So what? Everyone finds things get rough at some time in their life. I am still trying for you. Can't you try for me? No, I guess not. Trying together is past for now. Perhaps at some later time? He has three question marks there. I have been checking your car several times a day, leaving notes. I will leave this letter for now. For some reason, I am a little apprehensive. I cannot understand why or how you could get along without your purse. Are you okay? You must be. You are so good at taking care of yourself. The guy who wanted to buy the boat just came back. I think I will sell it to him. It is just too much of a pain to try to take it back with me. Please come home. I need to get so many details straightened out that only you can help me with. Please come home. How I wish I didn't still love you. How I wish you still did love me. Jewel. P.S. You know where to find me in SLC. Contact me there. Work. Like you said you would. I will give you my home address and phone number as soon as I have one. What you're doing with Harriet... <laughs> I spelled Rior wrong and that doesn't make sense. What you're doing with Harriet... You must stop torturing me this way. I simply cannot take it anymore. If you are going to do something, for God's sake, do it. If you aren't, then for God's sake, stop talking about it. I cannot stand the mind-bending, the now-we-do-it-now-we-don't syndrome. Decide something, daddy, and do it. This indecision is killing me. You are the one who demanded I search for a new love. That wasn't my idea. Does this letter make any goddamn sense in the context of their relationship? Is this how he always communicates with her? Because later in this podcast, this letter is going to drive you insane. All I'm saying is that I'm looking closely at the pixels on this issue. A few more details from the article titled, The Trail Goes Cold. This article confirms the official timeline of her disappearance, which was a touch fuzzy in the show and earlier pieces I read. Jewel contacts the BART police officials, the force in charge of the transition area, to report that his wife was missing and last seen there. They are the ones that contacted the Concord Police Department, and this is how she was reported missing on day five. And one last piece from Joan called, Lingering Questions Keep Search Alive. This article is a bit long, and it's about the investigation after Dottie went missing. Francie Kaler, the private investigator, is profiled a bit and clarifies that she came across Dottie's story about a year long into being a PI and then proceeded to take the case at no charge with her then-partner, the experienced Randy Ontiveros. Francie was stupid serial sus because she could imagine that someone with the personality that Dottie had and the agoraphobia would willingly just leave her home with all her things behind. All of her books, the copious notes and letters just left for her husband to do with what he wanted didn't seem right. Also, it was suspected, I mean, it was known, like, okay, motherfuckers were talking about how Jewel cheated on Dottie, but what we didn't know before was that he actually had proposed marriage to this lady, even though he was already married again. The reason we know this is because Dottie found a bunch of shit that confirmed it and that this anonymous love interest was in Colorado. 
Then when the episode of Unsolved Mysteries aired in 1987, they got a phone call from a woman in Colorado saying she was dating Jewel around this time and broke up with him after he proposed to her and then found out that he was married and then that his wife was fucking missing and he was not looking for her. This tip was forwarded to the very same BART police that reported Dottie missing originally, and they contacted this woman who prefers to remain anonymous. They finally arranged for her to travel to the station to make a formal statement, and it was fucking ridiculous. Here is her story. Anonymous Colorado had a six-year-old son and worked in the same forest service as Jewel. This was in 1984, and Jewel was doing his whole aerial infrared photography thing that he helped develop, which would eventually get him his work assignment around the time Dottie got missing. One day, while on break, anonymous Colorado lady sees Jewel sulking by a soda machine, as one does when they're a tiny-eyed dick stick. The man has tiny eyes. Look at a picture. Anonymous says he looked, quote, sad, lonely, and vulnerable, like a little puppy. A puppy that left his wife for another woman and married that woman and was planning on leaving that current wife for another woman. So I guess uh, not like a puppy, really. They struck up a conversation, possibly about the implications of puppy marriage and divorce. I mean, they don't have thumbs, right? Like, like opposable thumbs. I guess they would, you know, put like a paw print on the marriage license. And the, do they have a puppy courthouse that they would go to? Or do they have like a, a puppy church and get married before puppy Jesus by a puppy priest? There are endless questions one could ask. Anyway, they hang out a little bit, talk, go on walks, and on day four of this, he tells her he wants to have a sex with her. But she declines because they only just first started talking like four days ago. Yada yada, Jewel returns to Concord and starts doing that thing men do when they're just a little bit off, endlessly calling this woman and writing her love letters about how much he love he loves her and only her. I will reproduce a quote for you now, but I suggest you take a bismuth tablet before you hear it. Okay, here we go. My darling... My love, this is me. How do other people know the feeling? I guess I've never been in love before I met you. How lucky can I be? You are showing me the world in a way I never imagined it would be. Everything in life is new to me because of you. I love you with all my heart. Darling, only yours. Always, Jewel. It's at this point I want to make a slight pause. I make fun of Jewel for his letters and the uh, over-lovey-dovey bullshit and how it makes him seem desperate, but I can't say I haven't done similar shit while I was younger. But I, unlike this person, admit to being an idiot. And hey, writing someone you love with a sappy letter can be sweet. It's just that uh, this kind of shit, in this context, makes me feel like uh, vomiting on slight pause. Anyway, because this lady doesn't actually know what Jewel is really like, this sort of stuff actually works on her. I am absolutely not trying to make fun of her or anything for this. She just mistakenly assumed he was a normal human being and not a liar and a cheater. They spend time together when they can. They meet up for Thanksgiving and spend the holiday together. Then, at Christmas time, Jewel proposed to her and she accepted. They were engaged. But, for some reason, Jewel was dragging out setting a real wedding date. It's almost like he's done this exact fucking thing before. That same Christmas that those two spent together was the Christmas that Dottie met with her sister, Diane. At this point, the sisters had been fighting for a few years now, but they decided to put it behind them and finally be family again. Dottie came to Diane's home, and Diane thought she actually seemed energetic and happy for the first time in a very, very long time. It was here when she first discussed leaving Jewel because she was afraid of him and that 
she was having her own secret life away from him. They would later finish this conversation in May, just before her disappearance. Anonymous Lady was feeling weird about Jewel never setting a wedding date and started to feel strange about how he would never let her visit him at his home in Concord, California. Near around the time of Dottie's disappearance, Jewel was originally supposed to come visit her in Colorado, but he couldn't make it there. He called her and told her he had some trouble at his rental property, and he had to clean the place up. He said, she alleges, that the tenants left a bloody sight in the kitchen, like they had killed an animal in there. Francie, the P.I. sitting in with the BART police during this anonymous Colorado's statement, was shocked by that detail, especially since, at the time, they didn't have any rental property. Yet, it's almost like he planned to rent the house out all along or something. Continuing on, the woman stated that Jewel actually wanted her to meet his now adult daughter, who was markedly absent from much of the story. Plans were made for the following Christmas. Anonymous would meet Jewel in West Jordan, Utah, where his daughter was starting medical school. Once there, Jewel gets ready to go to the train station to pick up his daughter and approaches Anonymous. And in much like an episode from a shitty sitcom, his delivery is awful. He says, I've been married. I've been married twice. I'm still married. And she says, would you repeat that? But this isn't a sitcom. This is real. And it actually isn't funny in real life. I mean, it might have been funny I wasn't there. He continues his confession by telling her that his marriage was only really a marriage on paper, or some bullshit, and that, quote from the article again, it wasn't important. He goes and gets his daughter. How Anonymous hasn't tried to kick him in the dick and leave at this point already is kind of a stunner. But when the daughter comes, the whole reality of how fucking ridiculous this is comes to her when the daughter notices her engagement ring and is disgusted and angry by it. She knows her dad is already married, and she's like, what the fuck, you're already married? And what is this? And then further is like, how can you be planning to marry someone else right now when you're still married to Dottie and she's missing? Anonymous Colorado lady is now fucking full-blown genome soldier from Metal Gear Solid noticing footprints like, what the fuck is happening? The daughter, Jewel, and Anonymous are all staying in the same place. I guess it's Jewel's new house. And she asks the woman if she'd like to see a picture of Dottie. And she's like, why the fuck not? It's already crazy as shit. Why not put a face to the name of this insanity? The daughter leads her into a room and inside are boxes of Dottie's things that Jewel has moved from his home in Concord to Utah, which he mentioned he would do in his little notes he left. Yeah, so he had all her shit in boxes. So they go there, and they see all her shit in boxes, and they naturally get a little snoopy-poopy, and they uh, look at some shit. Dottie's calendar is in a box. It's the calendar she marked when Jewel went somewhere and wasn't home. She used these disappearances originally to establish a pattern and to figure out that Jewel was cheating on her with other women. On that calendar are dates marked for business travel. All of the dates written down are days he was spending with Anonymous. It apparently really creeps her out and makes her feel like shit because she is a normal human being. She later confronts Jewel about all this shit and he says he hated his wife and that, quote, She's gone. I'm glad she's gone. And if she's dead someplace, it's good riddance. Anonymous is probably shitting her pants at this point. She calls Collect to her mother, 
to leave a phone call record of her place in time after this conversation because she wants to establish a fucking legally accessible timeline in case she disappears and additionally tells her mom on the phone that if she isn't home within 10 hours, she was probably killed or kidnapped by Jewel. Fucking A for planning ahead, but... She packs her shit, jumps in the car, and gets the fuck out of there, apparently watching her rearview mirror just in case Jewel comes after her because she's pretty sure at this point he's fucking insane and killed his wife. Keep in mind here that her six-year-old son has been tagging along this whole time to experience this insanity in full IMAX, 40X, MX40, whatever, except he can't take the 3D glasses off even though the whole thing is probably giving him a headache and making him feel nauseous like it does for me sometimes because this isn't Marvel's Avengers Endgame. There is no Infinity Time Stone to go back and fix this shit. This shit is for real. After all the shit goes down, Jewel resumes the pitiful calling and writing letters thing and being emotionally demanding thing, acting like he has no idea why she ran off, and begs for an explanation as to why she suddenly felt like the lives of her and her son were in danger. Joan's article then states that Jewel proceeded to write this woman a 12 goddamn page handwritten letter in August of 1986, like it's a fucking senior thesis on being a goddamn lunatic. And seriously, like... I know I made the tiny eyes joke already, but I think like a symptom of that is he writes really fucking tiny. So it's like a 20 page senior thesis on how you'd be a goddamn lunatic that your teacher made you shorten to 12 pages and you cheated by making the font smaller instead of just learning how to fucking edit yourself. But maybe on page 26 of this script, I shouldn't sound so holier than thou. By Christmas of 1986, almost a year later, old Jewel, lady killer, uh, alleged literally, has a new gal. Probably a sexy centipede. Oh, fuck. I already did that one. I already did that one. After all this, Dottie's childhood friends from the town of Chardon, Ohio, where she was from originally, take out an ad in the same paper where these joan horrific articles were eventually published to try to contact Dottie, saying, Dottie, we are desperately concerned. We care. Call Chardon, Polly, and Joe. She unfortunately never did. The episode of Unsolved Mysteries airs sometime after, and sometime after that, we learn all the crazy shit about Colorado Anonymous. There are many other tips, sightings, and such, which never pan out to anything. Jewel's old neighbor, for instance, remembers Jewel warning him to never cut the ivy on an old fence that was uh, dividing their two properties, because the fence would collapse. Years later, they would remove that old fence and the ivy and discover a very aged and rusty meat cleaver stashed deep into the ivy with a handle that was covered in duct tape. The cleaver was given to police for testing, but at that point it had been many years. Nothing seemed to come of it. I believe this is the same family that reported the odd activity of Jewel installing a concrete patio on a property he was moving away from, which I'll talk a little bit more about in a minute. Francie the P.I. still considered the case open and unsolved at the time, and Dottie a missing person. She was still working the case and accepting tips with her new partner, Naughty Bumbo, at the time. <laughs> I know, okay, I'm a child. I've done this before, but like, Naughty Bumbo. That is a real name. Okay. I'm stupid. It's fucking Sesame Street-ass names. This next article is called, Kaler Finally Declared Dead. And the Kaler in this instance is Dottie, not Jewel. Now we're back in the year 2004, where it is acceptable to unironically enjoy American Idiot by the band Green Day. Superior Court Probate Commissioner Don Green ruled that Dottie Kaler was dead in the first week of June of 2004. Not one confirmed sighting or contact in 20 years led him to declare her legally dead. 
He named Diane, Dottie's sister, who keeps popping up, the sole executor of her estate, but barred her from selling the property that was jointly owned by her and Jewel, i.e. their Concord house. Basically, here's what happened. Remember, Jewel officially filed papers to divorce Dottie, apparently under grounds of willful desertion, which would have granted him sole propriety of all of their possessions and properties, including the Concord House, where some people think she might be buried, and apparently an undeveloped plot in Oregon. Maybe they can develop it into some kind of trail in Oregon, where people can get diseases, like diphtheria. Anyway, she said she did it to preserve her estate on behalf of their elderly mother, Susan. But declaring her dead actually prevented Jewel from an actual on-paper divorce. Jewel did not attend the hearing that determined his wife's apparent death, but he does, again, state that he personally believes that she is still alive. He elaborates in the most vague possible fashion as follows, quote, My personal opinion from postal mail I have received over the years, plus other issues, is that Dottie is no more dead than I am. He continues, I believe she disappeared with assistance, after securing an alternate identity, and that she is hiding in plain sight under all our noses. She will turn up eventually. It's been 15 years since he said that, so he's probably slightly wrong about that, maybe. What he meant by all that is that he apparently has received some kind of paper mail correspondence that specifically references Dottie in a way that makes it seem like she is still alive. Like information that only she or her sister would know about. And that he actually presented this to police investigators somewhat shortly after her disappearance. But he says... He never received any word or confirmation from said investigators about any of this information he allegedly supplied them. They do not appear to be in the public record. He also claims to have kept the original hard copies of these whatever the fuck things he said, what the fucking fucking whatevers. What are we even talking about now? Ghost writings? Like in that old Nickelodeon show? Fuck you, the 1990s and your kickball ghost ball fucks fuck. Additionally, he claims that she claims that she would eventually claim that he was abusive and that he would be responsible for her future disappearance. And she said, sometimes you have to be utterly ruthless to get what you want. You follow me? And furthermore, he states in this interview that I wish to be left alone. And I do not care whether Dottie or her sister want to play dead, play alive, play someone else, play victim or whatever. No word if he cares whether or not they play Yu-Gi-Oh, play Magic, or play Pokemon, or whatever trading card game. The end of the article confirms that a Concord police sergeant named Judy Moore confirms that Jewel is confirmed to be a confirmed person of confirmed interest in this case, and that the police actually returned to the old Kaler residence in April of 2004, and they used ground-penetrating radar which may or may not be a guy who sticks his penis into gopher holes, and they declared that there was nothing of interest at the property, which had apparently been rented out to other people continuously since Dottie's disappearance in 1985. An updated article from one year later actually clarifies a few important details to the case. It is entitled, Sisters Hope Wanes, Even as Detectives Plug On, of course by Joan. It states that the divorce that Jewel tried to get was actually derailed by Diane's effort to get her sister declared dead. Diane had come to the sad conclusion that Dottie must have been dead after all this time. 
If Jewel were to successfully get his divorce, he would gain sole ownership of all their properties, including all of Dottie's notes. But if she were declared dead first, the judge would have no marriage to dissolve, and her belongings could be divided among the family and next of kin instead of going to the ex-husband's sole ownership of everything. This is how Diane was given Dottie's belongings. Okay, home stretch. One last piece before we go. It's the most recent article I could find, and it's from May 2006. Again by Joan. Pour one out for Joan after this podcast is over. Focus on Husband in Revived Cold Case is the title. It gives us more insight into what the police have been doing these past few years on the case. Well, 13 years ago was a few years ago. Remember Kurt Messick? He is the lead investigator for the case and had been for a while. He prepared an affidavit read in court of law that produced a theory of what happened between Dottie and Jewel. Both he and the article remind us that these are not facts, but this is their reconstruction based on all of the circumstantial evidence and interviews. From this, they can obtain a search warrant. From the article, a quote from Messick. We have to state that we believe, one, that a crime occurred, two, there is reasonable cause to believe that this particular person was involved, Jewel, and three, that items related to the crime may be at that location. It doesn't mean a person is guilty, Messick says. When we serve a search warrant, sometimes we find exculpatory evidence. We can't call him, Jewel Kaler, a suspect until we have enough to arrest and charge him. Then we'd call him a suspect. This basically clarifies why he is referred to as a person of interest. In this affidavit, it gives 29 points of interest that point to Jewel as the main person of interest and that a crime was probably committed. I'll conclude the article by reproducing those right here. Number one, allegations Dottie made about her husband's propensity for violence and evidence she had been battered by him on one occasion. That's the 1981 typing stand thing. Number two, Dottie telling friends and family that she was in fear of her husband. Number three, Jules' engagement to another woman six months before Dottie disappeared. Four, Jules reporting Dottie missing on June 19th, even though he told police he had not expected his wife to return to the home until after he left on June 24. Again, that was a whole thing I said that made no sense. Five, Jules signing a contract on June 7th, 1985 to put the Concord house up for rent, even though he told police and others that he had been forced to rent the house after Dottie disappeared because her signature was required to sell or mortgage the house. Uh, six or seven, the implausibility of his story about finding Dottie's car parked next to his car in the BART parking lot. Uh, the number last one, statements Jewel made in letters to and in conversations with his fiancée saying he had made a, quote, Herculean effort to be with her, an effort that she may never know or understand, and that he would do anything for her, even kill the statements, as well as the news of Dottie's disappearance, so frightened the woman, this is Anonymous Colorado, she told police that she had broken off contact with Kaler. Okay. Inside the affidavit is also a copy of a letter sent by an anonymous person from Gary, Indiana. Seems trustworthy. It states, quote, To whom it may concern, Dottie was killed by her husband the morning she disappeared. It happened very early in the morning. He bought her out to the garage and struck her with a tire iron. It does say he bought her out. This letter was dated 4 January 1988. They took DNA from the letter, and the closest they got with that is that the sender was a male. Woo! It's important to note that this is after the Unsolved Mysteries episode aired, so 
Messick believes it's very probably a fake, or written by a... Ugh, psychic. Again, that article was called Focus on Husband in Revived Cold Case. This is one of the only articles that is still openly available online, and if you'd like to follow up with a good summary of all the events from this incredibly long and drawn-out version on this podcast, that particular article is a great one. I'll link it and stick it in the description box since I can actually do that this time. This concludes the info from the group of articles from Joan Morris. Thanks, Joan. That's pretty much all I have on the story up to 2019. It really seemed like we were going to learn something that's actually useful to a criminal case at the end, right? Wrong. As I said, clusterfuck. If you yourself know anything about what happened to Dottie Kaler, please contact the authorities as this case is still legally unsolved. A big thanks to Joan Morris, who absolutely does not know who I am and will never hear this. Part of the reason I went into the the detail, uh, a lot of detail, uh, and took more than the normal amount I would from her stuff is that you can't actually access her work online anymore. And I want her stuff to survive in some way without just copying it verbatim. So huge acknowledgement there. Without her, I wouldn't have much to say about this story. She does pop up on the popular Unsolved Mysteries forum of discussion, sitcomsonline.com, where she makes fun of Jewel for being a control freak and messing up a Wendy's salad bar. I decided not to reproduce that stuff on here. Uh, that seems a little weird to copy and paste stuff she wrote in a forum, but she apparently was active in some online communities a few years back, answering questions about the case and trying to point people to her old articles since they weren't properly archived. This is also where she reproduces the letter that Jewel sent to Dottie in her car at the BART station. It recently became public record, I guess, at the time, and that's where I found the letter. So I guess I did actually copy something that she said uh, on this forum. I'm a lying hypocrite. Anyway, what is my opinion about this whole did he or didn't he do it thing? I was very much on the fence until I found and read all of Joan's articles. Without the pieces she got from the private investigators and from interviews with neighbors, I mean... This all makes it look pretty goddamn bad for Jewel. Obviously, I can't say he did or didn't. This is opinion. Some of this stuff may be exaggerated or even falsified. It's all circumstantial. I have no idea. None of it made it into an actual murder case because it is like super circumstantial as fuck. But I will say this. He may or may not have had lots of sex with stink bugs, which would explain that squished up look on his face. Comedy podcast, none of this matters. I'm just some random dipshit with no authority or journalistic integrity. The only reason you are listening to this right now is to avoid doing work. You know it, and I know it, and result, still unsolved. Please contact authorities if you know anything about the case of Dottie Kaler. Well, that was fun. Uh, or was it? Now, finally, comes the time where we say goodbye. It's been a long, long time since episode 3, and <laughs> since the beginning of this episode, and I again apologize. Again. Again. The final story by itself was originally over 15 pages long, and I edited it down to 15 and a half pages. <laughs> it was filled with deep facts taken mostly from the articles written by Joan Morris, and I acknowledge, again, all of her hard work, and that I basically just summarized all of her writing, I didn't really see any other way of doing it at the time. If you want to see the articles and sources I used to create this episode, take a look at the description box of wherever the hell you're hearing this. I don't think I can post Jones articles online. I mean, I know I can't. I'd have to like copy and paste them, but you may be able to find them somewhere other than a place one would normally find new news articles if you Google hard enough. 
Final notes. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to the first three episodes of this podcast and saying nice things, and to the people, uh, the couple of people that were very concerned that I had quit the podcast. I didn't quit, and I won't quit anytime soon. I have a new office set up now, uh, again, and I'm slowly converting it into a sometimes studio. I plan for reels this time, making episode gaps shorter. I've already started on episode five. I'm also, sorry everyone, going to have to stop uploading actual, like, video clips of the show to YouTube. Uh, I haven't decided if I'm going to do it in this episode yet. If you've already gotten to this point on YouTube, you know whether or not I have. Even if I use the clips sparingly, edit them, literally fucking draw over top of them, uh, and recut them, I still get flagged for copyright stuff on there, because the rules apparently don't apply to the flaggers. I'm tired of them fucking with my videos, uh, even though they're fair use and I'm talking over them and explaining crap and using pieces of the video to explain a point. It's totally... I think I'm just going to start using stills from the show and uh, original video clips that I can use without getting flagged, maybe, and I'll just see if that works. Okay, I think that will just about do it for this episode. Uh, let me know what you think about the changes to the show, whatever the changes are, because I'm not 100% sure because I'm not finished with them yet. I will continue to change and fiddle with uh, how the episodes are made until I get the soup just right. Now I'm hungry for soup. One last thing before I go. It's a little bit of um, embarrassing uh, e-bagging, but uh, it's me, so it won't be so bad. I promise. I am starting a Patreon page for the whole Destructoblog YouTube channel. I'm still fiddling with it, uh, as I am constantly fiddling with everything I do, but my plan is to do one of these podcasts a month, and a few videos in between when I can make the time for them. I think I'm going to uh, set the join level down to just $2 a month. I'm not greedy, and honestly, with the content gaps in the past couple of years, it doesn't really seem fair to ask more than that at this point. Uh, if you donate, it will make sure I can put the actual insane amount of time it takes to make these things and uh, I, I will give you a personal thank you and probably a podcast shout out I, I plan on reading the patreon uh, in like the credits of the podcast so everybody that donates will get their name in the episodes uh, as long as it doesn't take you know 20 minutes and, and please don't have one of those uh, weirdly racist usernames or I'm just going to refer to you as Greg I do not make any money from this channel through ads, and at this point, making these costs me money. It's part of the reason I take huge hiatuses for making these things, aside from the horrific lung infections, which you can still hear, and moving house twice in the same goddamn year, like last year. Donating a little cash to the channel will help make the turnover time shorter, and you can hear my wife outside the door. Uh, can you give me like one minute? Do you need inside like right now? Can you hold on like one minute? I'm almost finished. Thank you. Donating a little cash to the channel will help make the turnover time shorter. And again, I'd like to do one big Solved Unsolved podcast at least once a month. Anyway, if you're interested, I will post the link to the description as well. If you're not interested, fair enough. If I gave two bucks to every podcast the YouTube channel I subscribe to, my wife would hit me and no one would blame her. I do think, though, that I'd like to do exclusive video clips from the episodes only for Patreon. For example, one story in this podcast spawns several TV show episodes and made-for-TV movies. Maybe it would be fun to watch those and comment on those too. There just wasn't time in this episode for that, but if I had patrons, maybe I could make the time and do extra crap just for them. Just saying. I'm still trying to make the things and build an audience with this at this point, and if it doesn't work out and nobody donates any money at all, that's okay. 
I'll continue to make them whenever I can, you know, spare the time, because it's fun and creative and blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's enough of me talking about myself uh, and goals and things and stupid crap like that. Get back to work or studying or driving to the airport or whatever the hell you're doing while you're listening to this. Pooping. Be safe, be nice, and don't murder anyone. And perhaps you too can solve a mystery. Footage and audio from the television show and solve mysteries is used under fair use. This show is not affiliated with the television show, and the footage and audio is used under a fair use without permission. Please support the Unsolved Mysteries by watching it from official licensed sources such as Hulu or Amazon Prime. Unsolved Mysteries is by NBC, CBS, Spike, Lifetime, and currently distributed by Film Rise. We miss you Robert Stack and Dennis Farina. Music by 3Chain links from the album Phantoms used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Please see companion text for full license and link. Please visit 3Chain links on SoundCloud. If this is 3Chain links, please answer my fan mail. Goodbye.